Welcome back to the Cape Fear Rundown. From WHQR Public Media, I'm your host, Camille Mojica. It's episode 70, and this week we talked to Kelly about the warming shelter and what it is, and then Ben has updates for us in the True Colors double homicide case that we didn't touch on last week. Stick around. This weekend is supposed to reach temperatures below freezing at nighttime. For those of us who are sheltered and have somewhere to stay, it usually just means turning up the thermostat. But what about those who are homeless? Kelly joins us now to get into it. Welcome back to the Keep Your Out. I'm here with Kelly Kenoyer. Hello. It's cold outside. It is. It's very cold outside. Today was the warm day, and it's going to get down <laughs> to the low 20s and the upper teens over the weekend at night. Yes, and because of that, I have you here to talk to us about the warming shelter. What is this warming shelter? Yeah, so uh, a lot of people assume that this is a government-sponsored thing. Um, mm, but I it, did. <laughs> it's definitely not. Um, this is something that is put together by a group of pastors locally. Um, it's kind of an ad hoc thing. They do it whenever the temperature drops below 35 degrees. Um, and this week, they're staying up they're staying open for almost a week. It costs them just over $500 a night to run the thing. Really? Yeah. Um, and they have to just do it from donations um, through their churches. The main pastor who I'm in contact with who runs it is uh, Meg McBride. I think she's the main organizer as well. So, you know, she's there pretty much 24-7 right now. So what exactly goes on at this warming shelter? Is it for unhoused folks? Like, do they go in at a certain time? Yeah, so basically the way it works is it's only a nighttime thing, um, but they provide uh, three meals over overnight. It's initially dinner time at 6.30, they deliver pizzas at 8.30, um, and then they have breakfast in the morning, and then they see people off. So okay. people, are, they are, uh, people are allowed to check in at 5.30, um, and I think they have to leave by 8 or 9 in the morning. I can't remember when they have to leave, but that gives everybody who runs the shelter time to take a break and prepare for more people to come. I think there are occasionally holdovers when they have medical issues that make it really hard for them to have mobility or go outside. Mm -hmm. So sometimes there are holdovers, but it's a really limited number. Um, actual overnight stay, uh, the last night I heard about was 104 people. So really, yeah, a lot, a lot of people utilize this shelter when it's really cold outside. Where is this shelter? Is it a building? It's actually where the day shelter is. Oh, um, okay. Last year it was in a different church, but this year it's at Grace UMC, um, United Methodist Church, uh, at 401 Grace Street. Mm -hmm. So it's downtown, which is great because there's a lot of homeless folks who are downtown. Um, so it's easier for them to get to than the one that was further down um, off market where it was last year. That made it harder to get people rides down there. Okay. Um, I remember hearing when I uh, did my dispatch there, there was a guy who had a herniated disc. So he was really concerned about trying to go downtown for another hot meal because there was one being served downtown and then come all the way back. Um, he was worried about being able to walk that far because he had severe back problems. Mm -hmm. um, so it's great that it's downtown now. Um, and it seems like there's a really good partnership between all of these different churches uh, at Grace Street, so it's it's great to see. It's primarily through donations. Um, That's crazy. People drop off clothing and stuff as well. And I would say, if you're interested in supporting them, go to their Facebook page. That's where they post updates on their needs. So you'll see where they still need volunteers to come through uh, and what exactly they need. Last I heard, they need cots because 
they only had 100 cots when 104 people showed up. So they were like scrambling to find more cots yesterday. Uh, So hopefully they got some more, um, but I'm sure they could use even more because they're probably going to continue to see more and more people. I mean, it's going to be really cold. Yeah, the more cold nights in a row, the more people show up towards the end. Um, Last year when or the year before last, when it was very cold over Christmas. I think they were open for three or four days, and it's always the last day that they're open that has the most people. Yeah. So given that we have the whole weekend ahead still, they're gonna their last night is Sunday night. Uh, they'll close it up Monday morning. I think Sunday night is going to be when they have the most people because it's also going to be 21 or 19 degrees that day. So That's freezing. <laughs> very cold. Um, when you did your dispatch, were you able to talk to any people that were staying at the shelter? Yeah, I mean, I served food to dozens and dozens of people. Um, yeah, they, uh, they're they grateful, a lot of them, for it. Um, some of them are a little demanding. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's a little bit different, you know, they're yeah. like all of humanity. Um, and a lot of the people who volunteer are like seasoned at it. They go oh, every time. Okay. Um, so I was one of the rare total newbies who was there. So I was just like, tell you me, noob. tell me what to do. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, they're always really grateful. A lot of people come for seconds. One of the things that uh, kind of stunned me was how much food these folks were eating. And it's because they don't normally have that stable of a source of food. Mm. Um, so they come for seconds and thirds. And then, and that's for dinner, you know, dinner at 6.30, they come for seconds and thirds. And then they get pizza two hours later and they scarf all of that down too. Because <laughs> they don't get to eat often enough. So when they get the chance, they they eat. We have the warming shelter and obviously this weekend is a pretty good explanation or example of why it's needed. But yeah, why do we need to have a warming shelter? Well, the thing about it is it's a pop-up, right? Mm. Um this is only happening because the weather is severely cold and they don't there aren't resources available to provide the shelter for these folks the rest of the time. Okay. Um the thing about it is it's low barrier. Um you can come in no matter what condition you're in, if you're intoxicated or whatever. Um like you can't use alcohol or drugs on site, but it's not like they drug test you or ask you really tough questions before you go in. Yeah. It's basically just a count, you know, um, that they keep track of. But for the most part, it's just everybody who can physically get there and they help drive people to it. You know, a lot of social workers in town help support that. Everybody who's able to get there can stay there. No no questions asked. Um, But this warming shelter is no barrier whatsoever. Anybody can come in. Um, They make a gender separated room for people who aren't comfortable with being in, you know, if women don't want to be with the men, etc., uh, so they try to make it as accessible as possible, but it costs $550 a night. It's just put together by a couple of churches. Mm. They can only do this when they have to. So when I see the warming shelter and when I see the numbers of people staying there, I feel like it's a good indicator of the level of need that we have in the community, mm. knowing that there are still people who won't go because they can't allow pets. They just don't have the capacity to also manage animals. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure there are people who are staying out in the woods because they don't want to abandon their dog, you know? So that's the kind of thing that I think about when I see these numbers out of the warming shelter. The fact that on the second night they were open, they were already up to 104 is stunning to me because last year uh, it was, it was in like the 80s or 90s on the second night. So I think that 
What I'm going to be watching for over the weekend is how high these numbers get, because it might be a record. And I don't find that surprising since the Salvation Army closed. Yeah. And the point in time count last year was the highest that it's been in quite some time. We have the point in time count coming up again later this month. And oh. I'm, I am fairly certain the numbers are going to be higher gonna than be last higher. year. So um, this will be an early indicator of whether that'll be the case. Okay. Um, and just one last question. They do have a shower cart you said that they have? Yes, they have a shower cart. Um, actually, they're looking for volunteers to help support that service. Um, so in the evenings after dinner, um, people can come and take a shower. Uh, they've had it for every night this week, which really? is great. Um, it's hard to get access to that, especially for hot water in wintertime for yes. people who are unhoused. So it's kind of giving people an opportunity to get fresh and clean. They have a lot of donated clothing as well, so people can get in fresh clothes. Uh, so it's a really nice additional service. Um, I think that the people who run it try really, really hard to make it feel comfortable and accommodating and welcoming mm -hmm. for everybody who needs it. And um, that's just another component of that. Well, we'll have a link to their Facebook page in our show notes. Kelly, thank you for being on the show with me this week. Thanks for having me. Last week, Ben joined us to talk about the True Colors double homicide case, but we forgot to talk about some things, so he's back to get into it. Welcome back to the Keep Your Rundown. I'm here with Ben Shockman. Hello, Ben. Hi, Cammie. Okay, last week you were talking to me about the True Colors double homicide case. Yes. But we didn't talk about a very important part of this case, which is trial. We didn't. <laughs> okay, so what can you tell me? So as far as we can tell, this is still headed to a trial. Okay. And I'll put an asterisk on that because there could always be some kind of plea deal between now and whenever the trial is. Okay. But right now, as we talked about last week, um, from court documents that we got, uh, it looks like all three of the defendants have been offered and rejected plea deals. Okay. And in fact, they've actually filed uh, motions in court to ask for a speedy trial, which is your constitutional right. Okay. So that is your constitutional right. I remember hearing about it in school, but I don't really know what that is or what it does. What does this motion do? So you basically have the right to say, uh, I, I want a trial as soon as possible. And the prosecution can take some time to build their case. Yeah. But the Constitution, um, like so many other founding legal principles, doesn't give an exact time frame. It doesn't say within 72 hours or within okay. 30 days. But the courts generally construe it as, as as soon as possible. As soon as the prosecution has a fair chance to make a case on behalf of the state, okay, you can go to trial. Um, now, you you can waive that right. For example, um, because you have the right to a, a fair and prompt trial, um, but say like you as the defense want to do your own investigation. Okay. And that takes time. You can waive your right to a speedy trial and say, you know what? We're going to take time here. As, now, again, this benefits people uh, who have money. Yes, because um, they can keep the attorneys and legal counsel. And because they could be out on bond. Oh, that's So true. imagine, so I, it's important to know that um, even if you're indigent, meaning like you don't have the money for an attorney, and you get a public defender, there's still like an investigator. Um, I've, I've covered a couple of cases where significant public money went to an investigator working for the defense. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's, that makes me feel better. But what I mean is, um, so take, for example, uh, the case of Michael Lee Hassan, who is a Wilmington dentist who is charged with 
dozens of counts of abusing his patients Mm -hmm. while they were under anesthesia. Um, For years, and I believe this is still the case, he was living in a house on Wrightsville Beach out on bond. He was in no hurry. I am this is projection, but I <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious. He was in no hurry to go to trial. And so he had waived his right to a speedy trial. But that's not the case here. That's not the case here. All three defendants, and we're talking about three men, Amante Bell, Raquel Adams, and Dyrell Green, have all asked for a speedy trial. Because they've been incarcerated, haven't this whole time? Since August of twenty twenty one. Oh, it's twenty twenty four. I just I I don't know why last time you said that I thought you in my head I was like 2023. So I thought it was oh only since last year. It'll be 3 years um if if it doesn't go to trial soon and we'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. Um it'll be 3 years at, during the summer. Okay. Um it's already been two and a half ish years. Okay. Uh so okay, so we're talking about Amante Bell, Raquel Adams and Dyrell Green. Okay. Now, when it comes to trial, are they going to go to trial together or no? So that's still an open question. Um, the prosecution has the right to try people together, especially for charges like conspiracy to commit murder. Ah, okay. Because the conspiracy involves more than one person. Yes. Um, now, I, I've heard from prosecutors and law enforcement people in the past that trying people together in front of the same jury um, provides a lot of opportunities for the prosecution to pick holes in the story. So if you've got three people who all commit a bank robbery, right, and you put them all on the stand, one after another, and they all tell what should be the exact same story. But they don't. But they don't. And that's part because memory is an incredibly fallible system. Um, People's memories are not as good as they think they are. I might remember it being a man in a red shirt when you say it's yeah. it was a woman with a baby right okay and so you know someone might have said it was 130 someone else might say it was 230 those minor oh. things probably aren't going to make or break a case but certainly you if know you the, were at the door or if yeah. i was at the door mm-hmm. okay you pulled the trigger i pulled the trigger the guard pulled his gun first or i pulled my gun first okay you know that's the kinds of things a prosecution is looking for material differences Significant okay. differences in the stories. Um, whereas if you try each person differently, you can always say, you might be able to interject that. You might be able to bring that from the other case and oh, say, like, okay. in his murder trial, this other person said this. But there's really no substitute for having the same case with three different people comparing and contrasting their uh, their alibis, their stories. So who gets to decide if they're actually tried together or not? Does the defense get to say, we want us to all be tried together or... So from what I can tell, um, I, I think both sides get to make a case. You know, they can file oh. motions. We would like to try these people together or we, you know, or the defense would like to try them separately. Oh, OK. OK. And I think I, I'm not totally sure on this. So this is not legal advice. <laughs> but from what I can tell, I think it's up to a judge. OK. So it would be up to the judge as to whether or not they would be tried together. I still need to confirm that. But that's that's what I think. OK. Um. And, and I say that because there are motions that go in front of a judge. Yes. To say we would like to do this or not. Okay. So now what is going on? What do you know? Okay. So what I know is that um, Amante Bell, who's one of the three uh, suspects, one of the three defendants, his attorney has left the state. She uh, moved to Oregon, I think. Okay. And It's very cold there. It's very cold there right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we're trying to figure out what that means for Bell's case. 
Can she still work on it? I mean, presumably, you know, she could do a lot of work remotely and she could fly in for hearings. Oh, okay. Um, But as far as I can tell, I think think she might, you know, she might be leaving the case. Okay. Um, Because Amante's not scheduled for any time soon. Mm. Um, And that means, I, I mean, it's... I don't really know what will happen to him. I mean, I don't see, I haven't seen any motions to reconsider his bond. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as I know, it's a reprieve from a trial. But like, he, again, he's he's still in the New Hanover County Detention Center. Raquel Adams has had rather a court date for February 8th. Um, that's been pushed back to April, it looks like. April. And I think that's because of something in the personal life of his attorney just asked for a continuance. Okay. Um, that is not uncommon at all. So right now there's there's you know a trial date on the table for Adams in April at some point. Okay. For uh, Dyrell Green, um, we I had heard that his trial was going to start next week. In fact, no. I, had a, I had a couple people reach out to me. His father had initially um, had told me late last year that he thought his son was going to trial in, in late January. Okay. That does not appear to be the case. Um. I don't know when. Uh, he's still on the court calendar, I think, for February. Mm. But it's it's. I think it's now closer to you know late spring. We could be looking at so yeah, you know, late April or May. Okay. Um, again, these delays happen. Uh, it's a very very complicated case as I talked about last week. Yeah. Uh, mountains of paperwork, and some of that time could be taken up by um, you know pre-trial Discovery hearings and stuff. There's discovery. There's also, um, I've seen this in other complicated cases, there's motions where you try to introduce certain information about the person and the judge decides whether or not it could be allowed. Ah, okay. So it's not so much discovery. You have the information. Um, So I can give you an example. I I covered a case of um, Timothy Iannone, um, who was the prime suspect in a couple of brutal murders here in Wilmington um, years and years ago, almost 20 years ago now. But they never uh, brought it to trial. They never pressed charges against him. You know, there's a whole 2020 episode about this. Oh, really? Yeah, really. But he was eventually arrested after a woman came forward um, and alleged that he had sexually assaulted her. Okay. And he went to trial. He was convicted. um, So he will probably uh, spend the rest of his life in prison. So the families of the um, murder victims felt some sense of closure and justice. It's not exactly what they wanted, but it was something. But they had tried to introduce evidence that the police department had against him into the case kind of to speak to character. Okay. And so there was some debate about that. Um, Now, there are pretty strict rules about how much of that stuff you can bring in. I was going to say we talked about this before, right? Like what you are allowed to bring up in terms of to show character or, yeah. hey, this person has done this before. And it's like, well, that's not relevant to what's happening right now. In general, you don't get a complete blank slate, but you get a pretty blank slate. Okay. The Etch Sketch gets a pretty good shake <laughs> before you go to trial. There'll In, be some lines left, but. I mean, unless. Now, obviously, if you killed five people and you were convicted, and every time you killed them in the same manner. Okay. And you yeah. had a very clear MO. Again, I'm not a legal expert, but like I feel like that would have a better chance of being introduced if in the case at hand it, the murder took place in, the, in that 
fashion, fashion yes. that followed that pattern, as opposed to just, well, you killed someone five years ago. You're a bad person. You're obviously guilty of this unrelated crime. Okay, I see. That's it. That's a very layperson explanation, <laughs> but it's kind of that's kind of how I, I took it to be working. Okay. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at kind of an indefinite um, postponement from Monte Bell. Uh, obviously, it won't be forever, but no, nowhere in the near future. Okay. Now, the next couple of months, we're not going to see a trial for him. We, at least on paper, we'll see um, in the early spring a trial for Raquel Adams. Mm-hmm. Again, unless there's a plea deal. Uh, and a little less certain when uh, Darrell Green will go on trial. I have no idea if it looks like Amante Bell probably can't be tried alongside Adams and Green just because I don't know what's going on with his legal representation. Okay. Um, I do know that, um, you know, Adams and Green could, in theory, be tried alongside. I haven't seen motions from either side okay. say anything about that. So that's that's an open question. Okay. And then the last part of all of this is that, um, you know, Ben David has taken a very concerted effort um, to sort of oversee this case. He's mm-hmm. not technically the prosecutor on the case. Yes. But I've seen him in court, you know, representing the state on this. He's taken an interest in it. Okay. But he's leaving office in September. That is true, and doesn't look like this will be wrapped up anytime, anytime soon. I mean, it could be, but that's there. There is, in a sense, a ticking clock. Um, both, both because I'm sure he, you know, he has followed this case for years. He was like one of the first people on the scene. Yeah. Uh, when I got there, he had already been there uh, the morning of the shooting, and so you know, as a as a prosecutor, I could see wanting to see the case to its conclusion, mm-hmm. win, lose, or draw. Um, and also, he is. I mean, just as an as a outsider looking in, he's one of the stronger prosecutors in the office. Yes. There's plenty of talented people there, but Ben Davis is a very uh, talented prosecutor. So the state obviously wants to make its best case and put its you know best prosecutor on the case. So yeah. that's what we that's what we kind of know about what's going on now. So. OK, before we wrap up this segment, I have another question. Is there anything that could change, though, in, in, in the meantime, to that they could get out and not be incarcerated this whole time? I don't think so. Um, all three of them e- each have very high bonds, a million dollars or more. Mm. Um, and, I mean, short of a private benefactor coming along <laughs> without, you know, it would take at least, I think, $100,000 down payment, probably more, Wow. to secure those bonds. So um, the other thing that could change is there could be some new piece, you know, say there was a piece of, like, really exculpatory evidence okay. Um, that wouldn't, you know, lead to dismissing the charges, mm-hmm. but might lead to saying, like, okay, now I need to reevaluate this, um, you know, or, or some change in circumstances that would make them less of a flight risk okay. that would reduce the bond. But honestly, that's incredibly uncommon. Okay. So for, for all intents and purposes – you know, these three men, Amante Bell, Raquel Adams, and Darrell Green, are detainees in jail in, until they get their day in court. Hmm. Well, Ben, thank you for being on the show with me this week. Happy to do it. Thank you so much for listening to the Cape Fear Rundown. Check out our show notes for relevant links and titles to the music we use this week. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or just general feedback, feel free to get in touch. You can shoot me an email at cmojica, that's M-O-J-I-C-A, at whqr.org, or you can find me on X at Cami Reports. I'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Camille Mojica, 
and I'll see you next week. 